0: Major Reisman, you are ordered by Allied command to select 12 general prisoners convicted by courts-martial and sentenced to be executed or serve lengthy prison terms for murder, rape, robbery, and other crimes of violence. And you will deliver them secretly behind enemy lines in France to undertake a mission of sabotage that could change the course of the war. The 12 men will be known as the Dirty Dozen. Lee Marvin as Major John Reisman. There's a little of Major Reisman in every man, says Marvin. Tough and unyielding, yet compassionate. I think it's the best role I've ever been asked to play. You've all volunteered for a mission which gives you just three ways to go. Either you can follow up in training and be shipped back here for immediate execution of sentence, or you can follow up in combat, in which case I will personally blow your brains out, or you can do as you're told, in which case you might just get by. Now you hold it right there. This war was not started for your private gratification, and you can be damn sure that this army isn't being run for your personal convenience either. Ernest Borgnine as General Warden. I'm tired of seeing generals portrayed as desk-bound pen-pushers, says Borgnine. So I've played Warden as a rough professional soldier. Robert Ryan as Colonel Everett Dasher (sighs) Breed. There were officers like Breed, says Ryan, who could never suffer the rules broken or even bent a little.
1: Major Reisman's compliments, sir. Tell him what it's you prefer to be captured or destroyed.
0: Jimmy Brown as Napoleon Jefferson. Jefferson is any man fighting for recognition against the odds, says Brown. I think I understand him pretty well. The hell! Is John Cassavetes as Victor Franco. Says Cassavetes. Franco is a petty hoodlum forced to heroism by circumstances beyond his control.
1: We go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want! That's what they want!
0: Trini Lopez as Jimenez. He's crawling with hate. Charles Bronson as Vladislaw. The last guy in the world you'd expect to be a hero. <laughs> Tele Savalas as Archer Maggot. Maggot is a maniac, says Savalas. His religious fanaticism can never be moderated or quelled. It is a constant danger. (laughs) Clint Walker as Samson Posey. An Indian with war paint smeared on his soul. Ah! Train them. Excite them. Arm them. And turn them loose on the Nazi High Command.
2: On. Welcome to the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson Podcast. I am your host, Scott White, and I have a first-timer on this podcast. Uh, introduce yourself, sir.
3: This is Sean K. Skippy Thompson here, Scott. We
2: watched The Dirty Dozen, starring Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, John Cassavetes, Telly Savalas, Donald Sutherland, and Charles Bronson. Dun-dun. So, had you seen this movie before? I take it that you had.
3: I had, but I was a, a wee lad when that when I did. So, probably uh, in the 1970s was when I watched this. <laughs> so, about, like, what, 40 years ago.
2: <laughs> well, I, I've watched this movie several times over the years. It's It's one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite ensemble casts. Ch- Charles Bronson... Was part of three excellent ensemble casts. He was in part, it was this one, and the Magnificent Seven, Mm. and the Great Escape.
3: I cannot argue with any of those words that just came out of your mouth. (laughs) But we are talking about
2: the Dirty Dozen from 1967. The gist of the movie is that Lee Marvin is a, shall we say, difficult. Officer, this is set during World War World War II, and he is given the assignment to take 12 convicted soldiers for various crimes, and they have to go over the lines and they have to bomb this chateau, which is it doesn't have as they say in the movie, it doesn't have any military value. But at any time, there's a bunch of military, there's a bunch of important Germans at the Chateau. Their job is just to go in and slaughter as many people as they can.
3: And this is leading up to D-Day. They're hoping that this break in the chain of command, that you kill enough officers at the Chateau. A few days later, D-Day hits, and that's supposed to help them. So the stakes are pretty high in this. Right. And Lee Marvin has,
2: he is forced to do it. Uh, he doesn't have a choice. What did you think of the movie? What's your opinion
3: of this movie, uh, viewing it for between your 40-year absence? Yeah. It was a great—because uh, I remembered almost none of it, so I, I'm watching it with, with fresh eyes. The only other uh, uh, connection I'd had to it was Sleepless in Seattle, that scene where Victor Garber and Tom Hanks are, are talking about a man's movie, and they're using the Dirty Dozen. And it was actually quite funny because some of those scenes are popping up. It was like, oh, that's why they're crying. Uh, I had forgotten that Trini Lopez was in this uh, for, for a while. And then for he, a then while. Just, <laughs> and then he's gone. He's like, oh, he dead. And he even dies off screen. I've heard two different stories. One
2: is somebody convinced him that it was a bad idea to finish this movie. So he he walked off. But the other one, which I believe, I believe he wanted more screen time and the director. God damn it. I can't think of the director's name.
3: Uh, Not. uh, uh, Hold on. Aldrich.
2: Robert Aldrich. Aldrich. Trini Lopez, like threatened Robert Aldrich. You either give me a bigger part or I'm walking and Robert Aldrich just killed him off screen. Boom. You're gone.
3: (laughs) That hanging from a parachute, apparently.
2: Yes. From an apple tree. Which they say was because one of his hit songs was "Lemon Tree." Now another, not related to the movie, Jim Brown, one yes. of the greatest running backs of all time. Jim Brown is in this movie, and he was filming this obviously during the off season of the NFL, and the NFL, the sixty, the sixty eight, sixty seven season was coming upon them. The NFL told him that he needed to quit the movie and report to report to camp. And Joe and Jim Brown just said, "Well, fuck you." I'm retiring. So that's the reason he retired from football at 29 is because he was making this movie and he didn't want to take orders
3: from the NFL. What bravery. I mean, not only was Jim Brown, just a man's man to begin with, but to turn his back on that surefire career in the NFL, because he wanted to do his own thing. And, and the acting bug, it wasn't just a whim. I mean, it it took him over and gave him a whole second career.
2: Right. It did. So the the original Dirty Dozen, there was established actors and then there was...
3: Who the hell are you actors? Who who
2: the hell are you actors? So the established actors in the Dirty Dozen were Charles Bronson and Telly Savalas and John Cassavetes and Clint Walker and Trini Lopez. Those were names. And Jim Brown. So six of the, at the time, uh, so six of the 12 were recognizable names. The other six were unrecognizable, but at the time, one of those other six was Donald Sutherland. This was before he was famous. So at the time, he was one of nobody knew who he was. He was one of the unrecognizable six. And that's how they said they got, we're going to have six name actors and six no-name actors. And out of those six, the only one to rise above the no-name was Donald Sutherland.
3: Didn't this almost directly lead him into his Hawkeye role in the MASH movie? It was, yes. Somebody seeing the... Uh, there's
2: a scene in the movie... Well, we're just jumping around here. This uh, I, I don't think this podcast is going to have... Uh, usually, I, usually I go scene by scene by scene, but this was a two-and-a-half-hour movie. There was just a lot of mini-scenes. So we'll just, we'll just jump around and we'll hit the hot spots and what we liked and what we didn't like. There was a scene in this movie where Lee Marvin is bringing his men in, the Dirty Dozen... And they're undercover. He doesn't want anybody to know what their plan is. He tells Donald Sutherland to play a general and inspect the troops. And that scene by itself got him the role of Hawkeye in MASH.
3: That scene could have been filmed for MASH as well as a, a, a later scene that uh, when we get to it, I'll talk about that. That I really thought I was watching an, an Altman film. Uh, and it's the uh, their... It's their pre mission, mission, their their war game. I think that's just something that could have ended up in MASH itself. Right.
2: I I agree.
3: But it was great seeing uh, Sutherland. And I'd forgotten, obviously, I knew uh, uh, Bronson was in this because, you know, when you talked to me, (coughs) excuse me, about the podcast, but I'd forgotten that Borgnine was in it, uh, George Kennedy, Basically, Lee Marvin was almost the only one that I remembered offhand. So seeing these other people really surprised me. And especially Clint Walker, who I hadn't thought about in decades. And I forgot just how huge this guy was. He Statue-wise. was a giant
2: man. He was he was 6'6", and he was just a huge, bulking man. He, he was in a lot of cowboy movies. And he really, out of all the Dirty Dozen, he has a good heart. He knows what he did was wrong. He really wants to rectify it. In the movie, The Dirty Dozen, it's like it's basically a suicide mission. That's what they tell them. But they say, if you make it out, you may have your sentence... What's the word I'm looking for? Commuted. Commuted. You may have your sentence commuted because their sentences range from 20 years hard labor to death by hanging. The movie actually starts off with a hanging.
3: Yeah, which surprised me. I
2: forgot about that. So most of these... In fact, all these men are in it just to save their skin. But Clint Walker is in it. He's like, well, if I die, at least I'll die a soldier, and that will make my parents feel better.
3: Now, Scott, if you could maybe set me straight on something, at the beginning, like when the opening credits are running, it's uh, you have Lee Marvin doing kind of a, a review of the troops kind of thing, and he's going up to each one, and I could have sworn that originally he had said like, oh, you know, private uh uh maggot uh, character with a name like maggot, you know he's not a good guy and then I thought it'd be like a the list of the charges against them or why they were in prison because you know these are like murderers and rapists I mean these are not just they just didn't carjack someone or or were a wall and but when I watch this on a streaming service and i don't it feels that they actually cut out. A lot of that, where just you hear their name, a big gap of silence, and then on to the next person. Did they remove that or?
2: No, it's so uh, Richard Jackal, who is also a character actor, he plays the sergeant, uh, Lee Marvin's right hand man in this. And he goes through the line, he just says their name and their sentence, Maggot, S, death by hanging. And they go through the whole line. Then the next scene Lee Marvin goes from cell to cell to ask uh, to any he. then and and we don't get all of them we once again we get we get the main actors he goes to Bronson he goes to Cassavetes he goes to Telly Savalas uh, he goes to Jim Brown he go, he goes to all the ones that we all the actors that we know we find out that Bronson shot a soldier in the back because he was running away with the supplies. How come you speak German?
1: Because my old man was a coal miner in Silesia. He didn't speak German. He didn't dig coal. If he didn't dig coal, he didn't eat. That was the language you spoke when he first came to the Yeah. Was it pretty tough in those
0: days,
1: man. it still is. I don't like offices. Not any of them, and I never have. But you were one yourself, weren't you? Yeah, three lousy days. Somebody must have thought you'd a good officer. They made a big mistake, didn't they?
0: I thought you claimed that he was going over the hill. What the hell are you talking about claimed?
1: He was going over the hill. My outfit was pinned down by the most murderous crossfire you ever saw. Half of them bleeding to death. And this lover, he took off like a jackrabbit. With all the medical supplies strapped to his back. The only way to stop him was to shoot him. Anyhow, he had it coming.
0: Yeah you only made one mistake
4: card.
2: you let somebody see you do it cassavetes killed somebody in a robbery telly savalas is this batshit crazy he raped and killed a woman clint walker accidentally killed a guy because he was in a bar fight and he punched him in the jaw and shoved his jaw through his brain and uh, jim brown he was getting hassled by a couple of white guys, so he ended up killing them. And this is 1944, so if you're a black man that killed a white man, you're done for, even in the army.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. And the odd, I mean, what kind of took me back on Telly Savalas because I remembered he was a bad guy, but he rapes and murders women thinking he's doing it, you know, like for the God Squad.
2: Telly Savalas is a religious freak in this in this movie. He's also a racist. Mm -hmm. Because this is the second Charles Bronson movie in a row That I've watched Where the N-word has been thrown out Because they're all Lee Marvin has them all in the gymnasium And he's like, here's the deal You guys are all gonna You're gonna work together You're gonna shower together You're gonna shit together You're all one unit And Telly Savalas, who's sitting next to Jim Brown Stands up and says Do we have to eat with N-words
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And and Jim Brown just gets up and starts pummeling the shit out of him. And <laughs> Lee Marvin lets it happen. Lee Marvin walks out of the of the gymnasium and goes, ah, they're just having a little squabble over the seating arrangements. And then he, he leaves.
3: Which is now, a great trope.
2: Which is a great trope. Yes. Now that being said, I read up on this movie. There's two people in Old Hollywood that nobody has ever said a bad word about. And those two people are Jack Benny and Ernest Borgnine. Nobody has a, nobody has ever said a bad word about Ernest Borgnine, and he said that Lee Marvin was talking bad about Jim Brown just because he was black. Wow! And, and I find that disheartening because I really like mm-hmm. Lee Marvin, but yeah. to find out that he was saying that behind behind Jim Brown's, and he wasn't saying it to his face, obviously he was saying it behind his back. And by the way, just to let you know, Lee Marvin was a notorious drunk in Hollywood. So apparently he was drunk for a lot of this filming as well.
3: I can believe that. My initial exposure to Lee Marvin uh, was in a drive-in movie in the early 70s. It was called The Great Scout and Cat House Thursday, I believe. Um, Either that or Cat Baloo. One of those two movies. Uh, But it was a Western comedy, but he played a drunk and I don't think he was acting that much.
2: So the movie is like two and a half hours long. Their objective is
3: this chateau. That's only the last 30 minutes of the movie? That gobsmacked me, Scott. This movie's two and a half hours long and two hours of it is training Getting get ready for the big day. But it it
2: never got boring. And that has to do with the performances, obviously. But it never got boring. It was just training and and going and driving in trucks and driving to this place it was there was not a lot going on but it never
3: got boring and it was believable to, to be able to pull off what they what they may or may not pull off at the end it doesn't come from out of the blue that oh we're you know we're working well together because it says we have to in the script i was actually believing that these characters overcame whatever issues they had with each other at least 11 of those 12 the one thing
2: i don't believe is that they would have taken Telly Savalas's character with them.
3: You you beat me to it.
2: I do not believe that that guy is so far off the deep end, talking about God's will and he's killing in God's name. And obviously he's he's shown racism. It would it was just it would just be stupid, which it ends up to be to take this man because he is just he's too much of a liability. Even though this is a suicide mission for all intents all intents pur- purposes it would just be stupid to take him which it was
3: absolutely because of course that's where it falls apart he he goes rogue and and mayhem and hijinks ensue
2: there's a psychiatrist there and he gives all the and all the soldiers get there get their turn with him and and that's when we really we really get a insight into bronson's character we get uh because he really only focuses on telly Savalas and charles bronson and we know telly Savalas is batshit crazy but then we we get a look into you know into bronson's head quite frankly the psychiatrist can't figure him out
4: now this is really quite simple i'm going to say one word and then i want you to come back at me as fast as you can with whatever word comes to your mind for instance if i were to say um happiness you might say children i wouldn't say that (laughs) well that was just an example but if i said ambition what would you say anything. Well, look uh, let's give it a try, okay? Weapon. Baseball. Knife. Dodgers. Officer. Pitcher. You, uh, you seem to be thinking about just one thing, aren't you?
1: Yeah. What are you thinking about?
4: Well, you see, uh, I don't want you to think of just one thing. I'd like for you to concentrate on each word I throw at you, okay? Okay. Food.
1: Cincinnati. Comfort. Chicago.
4: Now, what made you say that?
1: That's what I was thinking about.
4: Right.
3: Well, yeah, Savalas is just plan nine from outer space. He is so out there. And as you said, a total liability on this mission. They should have had the the dirty baker's dozen and had a 13th guy there just as backup. Well, they sort of do,
2: because the, the sergeant or the, mm-hmm. the corporal, he is sort of the baker's dozen. Uh, he goes on the mission with them as well. So he's behind the lines with them. So they really the dirty dozen is just the so there's really 14. Because there's the 12 prisoners, and they have Lee Marvin and Richard Jackal, who also Mm -hmm. go on the mission.
3: And I forgot him. Richard Jackal, that's one of those character actors that you've seen him in 30,000 things and would be hard-pressed to name any one of them. And he's only
2: 5'4", and he usually played tough guys. Five-foot-four tough guys. Yeah,
3: he brought gravitas with each
4: role.
3: My people have been represented. Now, what were some of the high points of the movie for you? Uh, I've got to say as after I was got over being taken aback by it, the, the war game that, uh, cause again, it's a wonderful trope. You see it in every movie from MASH to, uh, what was that Clint Eastwood movie? Uh, not, uh, Heart- Heartbreak Bridge, right? Where you have to have the, the fight against the, the common enemy who's usually an idiot in an officer's uniform uh, give them the near impossible task, and, and they do it. And I loved that bit because you, it didn't have to be in the movie. They could have taken that out. You would have had a two-hour and 15-minute movie instead of a two-and-a-half-hour movie and not miss anything. But it added so much uh, for their characters with this war it, game where they're supposed to uh, basically take over the the opposing bunker.
2: So in the movie... Lee Marvin is a major, and he has this problem with this colonel. They just don't like each other. Right. This colonel, uh, you know, this colonel is just making things tough for Lee Marvin, and and Mar and he actually to the point where he makes so much of a stink that the general Ernest Borgnine is just going to ship the ship the guys back for their sentence, and do whatever he's got to got to do with Lee Marvin. And Lee Marvin says, "You know what? If we capture your headquarters." In these war games, my guy, you know, my guys get to continue with the mission. Mm-hmm. So there is a point, it's like, so if they don't if they don't win, they all get sent back.
3: To die, or most to, of them are gonna die. To they got
2: some of the dirty dozen, their sentences were 20 years. And it looks like they're somewhere maybe in their mid to late thirties. So even if they got 20 years, they'd be getting out in their 50s, which is not incredibly old.
3: Thank you. Yes, it's not.
2: Would you take a mission where it's like 95% chance you're going to die
3: or just do your time and get out when you're 50? I don't know. I think probably the sauce on that goose was the commutation of the sentence, which meant basically it's wipe your records wiped clean. And maybe if you were of a mindset that you wanted to atone, pay your debt, whatever, you know, clear your conscience... They're finally doing something good. Or at least it gives them someone to fight against. You know, if you're in the army, you want to kill Nazis. And if you're in prison, you can't do that.
2: At this point, we haven't talked about John Cassavetes. Okay. Uh, John Cassavetes is the main troublemaker in The Dirty Dozen.
3: Yeah, he's like the uh, the stereotypical Italian uh, or, you know, that, that kind of that character who's the loudmouth. And says we don't have to do this, and that's when they say no. If one of you screws up, you all go back. And so he starts off to me being the very overt, uh, almost a uh, uh, who's in Full Metal Jacket, the, the guy that gets beaten up with the soap, Vincent D'Onofrio's character. Yeah, he, right. you know he's the one to be made an example of for everyone to gather around. But then he turns out being you know the the sleeper hero. And survives pretty well into it They eventually all come around
2: Except for Maggot They all come around Okay, I feel like a soldier again We're going to do this mission Because there's a point where John Cassavetes tries to break out And Charles Bronson and Jim Brown Basically have to, you know, kick the snot <laughs> out of him To keep him from, from leaving They all fall into line after a while They all become a cohesive team which is what Marvin needed them to do in the in the first place. And Ca- Cassavetes was for those of you who don't know Cassavetes was an actor and a director in Hollywood. He is basically credited for the the start of the independent film maker. What Cassavetes would do is he would do a big time movie such as The Dirty Dozen and use that money to fa- finance his Independent movies that he would direct and stories that he wanted to do. So he would do big budgets to finance his his lower budget independent movies.
3: That good on him for that. That's yeah. wonderful to hear. I want to talk about if if we can why they're called the Dirty Dozen because it I I'd forgotten about this. It, it starts off with they get punished a bit by Lee Marvin takes away their hot water and they say it tells them you have to shave and bathe in cold water and they all refuse and it turns out to be that that's one of the first things that they all do cohesively as a unit is to agree none of us are gonna shave then or bathe anymore and they actually become you know filthy stinky dirty and kind of revel in it that that's their their new trademark
2: So they've stopped shaving, and you could tell uh, some of the guys were able to grow beards, and some were not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How they're conveyed, I got to say, the the cinematography on this, you see these guys, and I know it's all makeup and, and, and glycerin and stuff like that, but I could almost smell those guys coming off the TV in certain scenes. They just looked like they smelled like charnel houses. And wow. I almost felt sorry for the hookers that show up for that one scene. Right. So there's a scene
2: where they get through their training. This is this is an all-male cast. The only females in this movie are these Lee Marvin brings in these call girls for a dance, you know, to reward the men for practice for practicing, for training so hard. Those oh no, wait a minute, there's not. And then at the then at the chateau. There are...
3: Yeah, there are some.
2: Yes. But there there are no main women. Nope. And the only woman who has a speaking part is... uh, It's all in German, and she ends up getting stabbed by Telly Savalas. Mm -hmm. Basically, there's no female character in this movie, which was written out of the script because Lee Marvin's part was originally given to John Wayne, and the original script was that character was married, but having an affair with a woman in England. And John Wayne didn't take the part because he didn't want to be associated with adultery. So they gave the part to Lee Marvin, and I guess evidently he wrote that out of the script anyway.
3: How do you feel I, Wayne would have done in that role as compared to Marvin?
2: I think Wayne would have, would have been a little too stiff. I think this part was perfect for Marvin. I think he had... Just the right amount of non, uh, non-chalance, as they say.
3: <laughs> non yes, yes. The, the non Absolutely agree. Uh, because Marvin, to me, was very believable as the always on the edge of being court-martialed outside-the-box thinker that they would give this assignment to. It's like, in, for, in order for this crazy plan to work, we need to give it to a crazy office or and I John Wayne was too kind of straight and narrow, as it were that I feel that if he'd done it, it wouldn't have been as believable that he would be outside the box so much to get these guys to work together
2: right, yeah, I believe lee marvin Lee Marvin was the perfect casting for this
3: movie, yeah, again, very believable that with a very unbelievable uh plot. The characters, the actors made the characters very believable, and that's what drove it along, especially how Borgnine gets won over during the big war game thing when he realizes that the guys are cheating, but there's nothing in the rule books to say that they can't do what they're doing. You know, they change their armbands and pretend to be members of the other team and basically just walk right into the headquarters and take over.
2: To me, that... I mean, that's thinking outside the box, because if Mm -hmm. you're going behind the lines on a suicide mission, you're not going to follow the rules. And basically, their job is just to go over there and slaughter. The Chateau, as I said, it's not a military. So there's going to be women there. There's going to be servants there. There's just going to be a whole lot of people who are not in the army, who are civilians. The first time they kill somebody, it's Bronson. It's this, these guys in a car, and Bronson just pulls out a gun and shoots them both in the head. It's it's very,
3: yeah. It, it the two of the the thwe, thweps of a silenced Hollywood right. weapon, and it's like wow, they're they're gone. This just got real. Because
2: in most movies, they would you know get out of the car, tie them up. Not mm. that no they. They just shot him in the head. And Bronson, who saw the movie, he said every interview I I see about Bronson, he always complains about his movies being too violent. But he (laughs) kept, he kept doing
3: these movies. (laughs) But the next one won't be nearly as violent. Okay, maybe the one after that. Maybe the one after that. What's the name of it? Death Wish. Oh, fuck! oh, don't worry, the next one will be Death Wish 2, like, also. so <laughs> Yes. We're going to spread it around. It won't be as violent. There was
2: a lot, of, there was some pushback from this movie because the American, show, the, the American soldiers show no mercy. They're behind the lines. They're, they're killing everybody. They're killing men and women and civilians. If they're there, it, it's their bad.
3: And these people are killed ugly. This is not, uh, this sounds bad, but it's not just the, you know, the sweetness of lining up against the wall with a quick bullet. They're uh, they're trapped with, and lots of hand grenades are being thrown down uh, vents and so, a lot of kerosene being added to the mix.
2: Yeah, so what happens is Charles Bronson is the only member of the group who knows how to speak German. So Bronson and Lee Marvin go into the Chateau. And everybody, this is sort of like an Ocean's Eleven deal. Everybody has their thing to do. These two have to set up at the ridge. And they have to, you know, and they got their machine gun. They have to keep any reinforcements from coming.
3: Don't they have like this 15-point song they got to sing with each right. step? So step one,
2: over the hill. Step two, cover the bridge. That's not what it is, but that's that. That's how they remember what they have to do, and and time wise. And there's a funny, well, not really funny. So part, so Bronson and Lee Marvin are in the chateau. They're dressed as German officers. Charles Bronson, he's a little worried about his German. He doesn't speak it as well as he remembered or he thought.
1: Ihr Zimmer ist nebenan. If Sie in the bar gehen möchten, werde ich inzwischen ihre Koffer auspacken. das? das That's all. Jawohl, Herr Hauptmann. Vielen Dank.
0: So, how's your German holding up? Oh, man,
1: I don't know. You know those two guys walking down the stairs? Yeah. I couldn't understand the way they said. Just to act mean and
0: grunt, huh? Yeah.
2: But he has to throw this grappling hook up on the mm. roof, and he keeps he keeps missing. And John Cassavetes is like, "Stupid Pollock." The the underlining racism is still there between all of them, even though they are each other's lifeline in this mission.
3: Right. But I, I like that that you know, despite all the training, they they get hung up by until Telly Savalas. Uh, goes off the deep end. The things that go wrong are kind of natural. The sometimes the grappling hook doesn't connect on the first two or three throws. Uh, someone else is walking on the roof and there's a weak uh, board and his leg goes through. Things that uh you know are unforeseeable, uh, or even Trini Lopez's death, which I, that was a funny moment to me when they realized, okay, now we gotta change the song. And okay, you're the new Trini Lopez, or or it uh, was his name Jimenez, I think was the character's name, yeah. And and so they're like, okay, now you seeing this part? That's you. Uh, so despite yeah. all their preparations, things start going wrong.
2: Right. Yeah. So there's this guy on the roof, and his job is to throw a couple of hand grenades and take down the communication tower, so they can't call for help. And he steps through the roof. Quite honestly. It didn't look like he couldn't pull his leg up. It, 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 it looked bad. It's like, dude, either pull your leg up or use your other leg to smash the hole bigger and pull your leg
3: out. Because it's like it, 10 solid minutes. He's just kind of hanging there thinking about yeah, it.
2: Yeah. It didn't look realistic that he couldn't get out of that. Mm-hmm. It just didn't look realistic at all.
3: Now, hand in hand with that, because when he does finally act, I'm presuming he dies. He uh, does. Because the roof kind of blows up, but they do it from a wide shot. You don't—he doesn't get to have a, a hero's death of sacrificing, uh, where you get to see the close-up and his his eyes showing resolve or whatever. He just, you know, throws a couple of grenades and the roof blows up.
2: That starts the mayhem. So with the grappling hook, Jim Brown and Telly Savalas are in the chateau, and why? And why they teamed up? Why would they team up Jim Brown and Telly Savalas?
3: Sometimes it's just in the script.
2: You know, the the racist
3: and the black guy. You're going to team them up, <laughs> and you're going to so, put the one. Yeah, you're going to put the rapist inside with the women instead of outside with no women. Telly Savalas is just looking to to shoot up this. It's a really compelling.
2: Telly Savalas wants more than anything just to start shooting this place up. Mm-hmm. But. He wants to have a reason to do it. He does just he doesn't want to just go in there and start shooting up shoot, shooting up the place. He's walking around. He's trying to get discovered. He's trying to get found out so he can start shooting up. And Jim Brown's like, "What are you doing? Get in hide." So he well, hides. Right.
3: He, he's just walking down the hallway and opening right.
2: doors at random. And he hides in this bedroom and this woman comes in. And he eventually gets her to scream. And even when she screams, nobody comes to her help because everybody thinks somebody's having sex upstairs. Mm -hmm. So he's doing everything he can just to fuck things up. And And he can't. So he just then he starts, well, then screw it. I just thought that was a weird character trait where he wants to start chaos. He wants to start mayhem. But he wants to have a reason to do it.
3: It must be his own way of making sure his conscience is clear. So when Judgment Day comes, he's like, hey, you know, gave him every chance. And Jim Brown ends up shooting Telly Savalas. And again, that's brave, not only for a war movie, but a war movie made in, this, in, this, in the 60s. Uh, because we have a black man shooting a white man. In
2: the back, I believe.
3: Yeah. And the whole point is that I don't think anyone watching this movie would be going, how dare he, you know, you're cheering him on for you. You're like, finally. And to me, I think that was important because what Jim Brown has to do later on to help finish off the mission is just, that's where people could easily turn on, on uh, saying, Hey, you aren't the good guys. If you guys are, are throwing kerosene and hand grenades on people trapped, where they can't get out and they're going to die horribly, you're now one of the bad guys too, and I, that's one of the things I loved about the movies that no one is straightforward good or evil on this one. Is the whole movie is shades of gray. So when the tower collapsed and Telly Saval starts shooting, this alarm
2: goes off and everybody. Sometimes when they spoke German, they had subtitles, and mm-hmm. sometimes when they spoke German, they did not have subtitles, and I don't know what that was four. I guess the, if it was information we needed to know, it was subtitles. And if we didn't need to know it, it was just German
3: without subtitles? Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I felt if it was stuff that was basically saying, you know, come on this way, you know, we don't need to see what they're saying. If we say, Eins, Eins! Uh, we don't, we don't know, know what that means because the acting conveys it. But if it's, they're going up on the roof We need to know that as audience members. This German general stands up and says, everybody, rank of captain
2: and above, get into the bunker. (laughs) But there, I guess it was captain and above and whoever you're with, because everybody starts running downstairs to this bomb shelter. All the, you know, all the officers and all the women. And Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin get caught up in this. And they get down there and they end up locking they end up uh, uh, one of those big stock locks they end up locking the everybody in this bomb shelter which is not which was totally not part of the plan now they're now they're improvising
3: right they're, because the mission parameters was to, to start shooting people and executing them
2: all the all the help in the uh, is french so all the mm-hmm. waitresses all the maids and all the butlers they're all french So there's a scene where this one of the Dirty Dozen has all the help in line and a couple of German officers. And he goes to Lee Marvin. It's like, what do we do? He goes, you know, release the French and kill the Germans. And so there's a scene where we see all the French people run out of the building, but we don't see any of the German people. So this guy, he executed those German officers right there on the spot. So.
3: And again, this sh- this guy's following orders. He's following the parameters. The team is working as a cohesive unit, you know, again, sans savalis, where it's working. The the This whole crazy plan is actually coming together until, of course, it suddenly doesn't.
2: Marvin's like, they're all in the bomb shelter. What are we going to do? And he's like, they got to breathe, don't they? Find the air vents. So they do. That's what they do. They find the air vents. I don't know where they got all these grenades. They've got like four dozen grenades and they all start throwing these grenades down the air shaft and, and Jim Brown's about to take one off the pin out. And, and Marvin's like, no, leave the pin in, leave the pin in. At one point, Charles Bronson just take like a sack of apples and just starts dumping it. I'm like, is that the safest way to handle hand grenades? (laughs) I don't know anything about hand grenades. I don't claim to, but that just seems like a totally unsafe way to handle this dumping it in like you're like you're dumping apples into a sink.
3: Well, believe it or not, it's relatively safe as as you know munitions go. Uh I've always loved in the movies when someone can take a grenade and put the pin in their in their teeth and and yank out the pin. Uh in reality you'd be yanking out your own teeth uh instead of the pin. Uh it is really hard to Prime and arm a grenade to make it go live. So I actually believed that part, but yeah, re- remembering that uh, I, I would have been like pulling the pin, throwing them down, and just have lots of little explosions. But Marvin's wanting a full, you know, no, we're going to throw a hundred grenades down there, and then we're going to light them up with kerosene, and it's going to be a big boom at that point. And that's where I really felt for Jim Brown because that's where the audience can turn against Jim Brown, the actor for what his character is doing at this point. And again, I just thought it was really brave of him and, uh handled well by the director.
2: So Lee Marvin gives Jim Brown, you know, count to four. And then, because at this point, John Cassavetes has stolen a vehicle for him.
3: Mm-hmm. Now they're also being hammered on the outside too. There, there's a lots of bad guys coming in in armored vehicles and tanks and stuff. And so they're under heavy fire. Right. And at this
2: point, there's they have a couple of machine gun nests set up. They're doing their best to keep everybody at bay. And Jim Brown, he dumps the grenades in the air shafts, and they blow up. And while he's getting away, uh, he gets mowed down with a machine gun.
3: But he is spiking those grenades beforehand. I mean, that is... That was why they had Jim Brown in this movie because he's running full tilt, with the you know throwing those grenades just like he's spiking a football. It was I thought right. it was really beautifully done. And yeah, and then he gets hit, and then we have what I call the Blake Seven uh, ending. There was a uh, TV show I watched when I was a kid in England called Blake Seven. It was another space opera, low budget, like Doctor Who. And the final episode of this thing, all of our heroes die. Just, you know, the bad guys start shooting them. And they survive years without being shot. And then in 30 seconds, they're all dead. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what's going on here, where our dirty dozen, one by one, or sometimes two by two, start falling prey to the the, the cruel hand of fate and Nazis.
2: Which is also, you don't expect that in a,
3: you expect maybe one or two to die. Token death, absolutely. And you thought maybe Trini Lopez was, you know, the the token. Okay, we got to kill a guy. Here he is. Maybe two others. Or a couple of the no-names. Oh, right. everybody is
2: dead except for Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, John Cassavetes, and Richard Jackal. They're all driving away. Everything is blowing up behind them. And John Cassavetes is like, we made it. We made it. And then we hear this gunfire. And his head just slumps forward. Richard Jackal's like, major, major. And they look over. I think that was also to whip the legs out from under the audience. Mm -hmm. John Cassavetes going to make it. No, no, he ain't. He ain't going to make it. (laughs) He died. He, He died. So at the end of the movie, the only one to survive is Charles Bronson. Out of the Dirty Dozen. Richard Jackal survives and so does Lee Marvin. But the only one of the prisoners to survive was Lee, uh, was uh, Charles Bronson.
3: Now, the thing that kind of made me snicker at the end is in the part of the denouement uh, is where you had I think it's Borg nine's character saying, "Those who died, uh, you know, their families are being notified. They died heroes, and and you you know their sentence has been commuted and so forth and so uh, on." But they're including Telly Savalas in this. And I wonder, did Marvin just say, screw it, I'm not, you know, it's not worth me. It's not worth it.
2: He's dead. Everybody else is dead. Nobody's coming back. It, there's really no point in, you know, having his family go through anguish. Uh, that's the end of the movie. The movie is, uh, is two-hour a trading montage and, mm-hmm. and 30 minutes of action. And it is a great movie. I don't know how they managed to pull, I mean, it's the acting, of course. Mm-hmm. They cast the right people in the right roles. All the acting is great. All the character actors are great. You believe everybody. Some some complain that these soldiers might have been a little too old. I didn't feel that way. I thought some of them might be old. I mean, it was a nice... Not all of them were old. Not all of them were young. It was a nice array of, of soldiers. I wouldn't say it's one of my all-time favorite movies, but I enjoyed this movie. It doesn't feel like two and a half hours after you watch it. It, it, flies. it certainly I,
3: didn't. No. And as far as their ages, uh, only because I don't think their ages match their their ranks. There's a lot of privates and corporals and stuff, and they're in their 40s. In reality, that wouldn't be the case. But I've always been a fan of, of the concept of the willing suspension of, of disbelief. And I'm, I'm willing to, you know, let there be a whole bunch of 40-year-old privates and corporals out there. Well, now, to be fair, Charles Bronson, he was
2: an officer when he committed his crime. Mm-hmm. So they, I guess, they busted him back down. I, I don't know why they would do that, but I guess they busted him back down to whatever he was, corporal, and then put him in prison as a corporal or, not, or as not an officer. So
3: right, well, because officers even in uh, prison are treated differently. You have officers and men, and so if he'd been fully convicted and put in prison as an officer, he'd still enjoy certain privileges. Whereas when you're busted down to a, a, a NCO, non commissioned officer. You don't get to enjoy those benefits at all.
2: Like usually in a movie like this, we get all sympathetic characters, such as they all had a reason for doing that. But that's not the case. John Cassavetes is in there because he robbed a guy for three pounds and ended up killing a guy for three pounds. He doesn't have an excuse why he did it. He was he was in a robbery. Telly Savalas is a rapist and a murderer. He has no defense on why he did that. Then we have Charles Bronson, who's like, well, yeah, I killed a guy, but it was for the good of the outfit. The army didn't see it that way. So not everybody, like you said, it's lots of shades of gray. Not everybody is an angel or an antihero. A lot lot of these guys are just plain criminals, and that's why they're in there.
3: Even then, there's plenty of... I don't want to say blame to go around, but even take your Telly Savalas, your your maggot character. Again, first off, his name alone lets you know he's bad news. But in basic training, they would have found out what a whack job this guy is because he'd be very vocal about it. They would, In reality, they would have yanked him from active duty and certainly not put him in a situation where he could rape and murder someone because he's very vocal about it. It's not like it's a secret. He's letting people know, well, if you put a woman near me and I think she's, a, she's slutty, uh, she's going she's gonna to die in the, in the greater glory of God. And he thinks all women are slutty. Right. Yeah. It's just <laughs> degrees of, you know, when he's going to get to them. And so his commanding officers, they know this about him, but they still put him out there until he does something bad. Then they can lock him up. And, again, with this, it's like they could have kept him there and said, okay, we're going to pit, you know, Private Johnson instead of Private Maggot here uh, off on this mission. But they choose him knowing what a wild card he is. So there's plenty of uh, uh, idiocy to go around. And that was the Dirty Dozen. Overall overall view of the, of the movie, Sean. I absolutely loved it. I'd forgotten how good it was. Was because again, when I watched it, I must have been, you know, a kid, probably my my teens, and way back in the day, maybe even pre-teens. Uh, I was shot at them all dying. You know, the sheer number of them dying at the end because it started to affect me. Mm. You know, I was like, oh no, not them. Maybe these these guys will make it. Oh no, they just got blown off the boat. Mm. And it was very powerful to me that I, I missed the fact. And at that final scene, it's kind of supposed to be rousing, where you have Marvin and Bronson, who's like in traction, if, if memory serves, and uh, uh, Jackal. And I'm just, all I'm seeing is the others aren't there until the end, where you have the whole reminder shot. And it was just very bittersweet. And it affected me more than I thought it would have. I absolutely love this film. I'm not inspired to go watch any of the sequels.
2: Uh, No, they made like two or three sequels of this.
3: Mm -hmm. And they were all
2: made for TV movies. No, this was lightning in a bottle. This was the perfect cast. This was the perfect director. Perfect source material. I I really do enjoy this movie. And it's a two and a half hour movie. But it's a two and a half hour movie about army training except for the last 30 minutes and you're going to be engaged in it. You're going to love the characters and hate the characters in a good way. Funny scenes and serious scenes. Lee Marvin is very good at subtle comedy in this movie. Absolutely. Very good. He
3: actually, that actually reminded me of something, Scott, where he's talking, I think to his adversary officer uh, who's at the 101st Airborne or something, because his guys are having to learn how to jump out of airplanes. And he delivers a line, and I wish I could remember what it was, but he does it almost kind of uh, the sarcastic, well, I'm just going to have to go down the street then, aren't I? You know, something like that with a, with almost like a Lee Marvin pretending to be gay accent.
0: Okay, Posey, let's see a little that Apache know-how. Rethread that pulley and get another rope down here. Huh? Yes, sir. Come on. Give these other characters a crack at immortality. I
4: thought you said that mayonnaise was the only one supposed to get on top of that chateau. But suppose Jimenez gets killed before he gets to the top of that chateau. Come on, Posey, move it. But
3: he added
2: so much just by doing that. And that's something John Wayne never would have done. Mm. (laughs) All right, Sean, what do you got? Uh, That was the part of the podcast where you can promote anything. What do you want to promote? Where can we find you? What are you doing?
3: Well, um, I'm working on getting my own podcast finally out there. In fact, I was so grateful that you were part of it. Have a podcast coming out called Skippy's Playhouse for what it is, and it's a movie review podcast. But the shtick is that these movies were box office bombs or forgotten favorites that like no one remembers, and they're just loving looks at the the movies that that deserved a better faith than they got, and we love them anyways. And so you can find that out on Facebook. Just look for Skippy's Playhouse. You'll see me there. And I've got about half a dozen episodes ready to rock and roll. So hopefully any day now I can give you a run for your money in the podcast scenario. All right. Sounds good. I want to
2: thank my guest, Sean Thompson, for doing this with me. And we'll see everybody here next time on the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast.
1: To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash scottwhite and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. This should help people find the podcast when they're searching. Uh, no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast.
0: Among the many reports of the raid on the Chateau near Rennes, perhaps the most objective is the one by General Gordon, which he states... We are recommending that those members of the group known as the Dirty Dozen who survived this operation should have their service records amended to indicate that they are being returned to active duty at their former ranks. And that the next of kin of those prisoners who were killed be advised that they lost their lives in the line of duty. Did a fine job, Major. I'll see you around.
1: You uh, did a good job, soldier. Hurry up and get well. We need men like you out there. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Killing generals could get to be a habit with me.
0: VR Vladik M Jefferson RT Pinkley VL Gilpin S Posey S Sawyer S K Lever R Bravos T R Jimenez JP Maggot AJ They lost their lives in the line of duty